Thank you, Laura and Barbara and Joan. Let's, let's pray together tonight. Father, I pray tonight that you would show us Jesus as he truly is. And I pray, Father, that seeing him, we will realize that he is everything we have and everything we need. We ask it in his name. Amen. It's a beautiful song. Give me Jesus. The greatness of God, one has said, is most clearly displayed in His Son. And the glory of the gospel is only made evident in His Son. And that's why Jesus' question of His disciples recorded in the gospels is so important. He says, who do you say that I am? And there are many, many answers to that question in our culture. One blogger has identified a number. I'll just share a few of them with you tonight. He says there's the Republican Jesus who's against tax increases and activist judges. He's for family values and owning firearms. There's Democrat Jesus who's against Wall Street and Walmart for reducing our carbon footprint and printing money. There's therapist Jesus who helps us cope with life's problems and heals our past, tells us how valuable we are and not to be so hard on ourselves. There's Starbucks Jesus who drinks fair trade coffee, loves spiritual conversations, drives a hybrid and goes to film festivals. Some people believe in open-minded Jesus who loves everyone all the time no matter what except for people who are not as open-minded as we are. There's Touchdown Jesus. He's been getting a lot of press these days. He helps athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christians and determines the outcomes of Super Bowls. There's Martyr Jesus. He's a good man who died a cruel death so we can feel sorry for him. There's Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, with high cheekbones, flowing hair, and walks around barefoot wearing a sash, looking rather German. There's Hippie Jesus, who teaches everyone to give peace a chance, imagines a world without religion, and helps us remember that all you need is love. There's Yuppie Jesus who encourages us to reach our full potential, reach for the stars, and buy a boat. There's Spirituality Jesus who hates religion, churches, pastors, priests, and doctrine, and would rather have people out in nature finding the God within while listening to ambiguously spiritual music. There's Platitude Jesus, good for Christmas specials, greeting cards, and bad sermons, inspiring people to believe in themselves. Revolutionary Jesus, who teaches us to rebel against the status quo. Guru Jesus, a wise, inspirational teacher who believes in you and helps you find your center. Some people like Boyfriend Jesus, who wraps his arms around you so we can sing about his intoxicating love in our secret place. There's Good Example Jesus, who shows you how to help people change the planet and become a better you. But Matthew showed us Jesus, the Son of David and the Son of God. And the truth is, Jesus is not a multiple-choice person that you and I can sort of fashion and fit into our idea of who He ought to be. Jesus is who He is, and it behooves us to discover who He really is. And so it's good for us in these early weeks of 2012 to see four distinctive portraits of Jesus. Matthew last week, Mark this week, 
Luke next week. And especially, I want us to see in Mark, Jesus' self-identification. The name He uses to identify Himself. And I'd like to just sort of explore that with you tonight as we study the Gospel of Mark. So would you stand with me and open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. And if you'd hold that spot, I think that's the... Um, that's the central passage for tonight. I'm also going to be reading from Mark chapter 1 and Mark chapter 14. But Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 30. And as you get that, let me just read verse 1 of chapter 1, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Then in chapter 8, Verse 27, it says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And then one more rather obscure passage. You may not have given it a lot of time. It's not on any coffee cup you will ever find in a Christian bookstore. But it's intriguing. And so I thought I would read it to you tonight. And it may give us a glimpse of what we're trying to understand. It's in Mark chapter 14 verses 51 and 52. And it says, a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. You may be seated. In our sojourn, when we were back in the United States, periodically we would turn on the television and watch Dragnet. And Sergeant Friday, with his um, monotone voice, would say, just the facts, please. Just the facts. Mark is a just the facts kind of gospel. He tells the story um, in less words. And we appreciate brevity in speech, don't we? He, he speaks less words, and he tells the story. He doesn't tell us uh, Matthew's part of the story about dreams and Joseph and Mary and Bethlehem and wise men. He, he doesn't tell us Luke's part of the story about, about Zechariah and Elizabeth and Gabriel and Mary and shepherds and stars and stables. He doesn't tell us in as much detail the encounters of the people in the resurrection, like Thomas's doubt in the Gospel of John, or Luke's story of the two disciples who were walking on the road to Emmaus. It's really just the facts. But if you look at a unique story that he tells in his unique way, and place it beside Matthew and Luke. You might conclude, like scholars do, that Matthew and Luke draw upon Mark. That Mark, even though it doesn't come first in order in our New Testament, was probably the first one written. And then 
Matthew, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, took Mark and added some things that Mark didn't choose to include, and that Luke did the same thing. But if you read Mark and you place his story of the rich young ruler beside that of, of the equivalent in Matthew and Luke, you discover occasionally there's a glimpse into Jesus that you don't see. Like Mark saying, Jesus, looking at the rich young ruler, loved him. He's the only one who tells us that. I mean, we all assume Jesus loved the rich young ruler, but Mark spells it out. Mark tells us one day the disciples are so busy, they haven't even had time to eat. And Mark, like the other Gospels, tells us it's Peter who blurts out, you are the Christ. When we look at it and we hear the story, what we realize is there's a character who has a front row seat to every story that Mark chooses to include. And that character is Peter. And so scholars have come to believe that Mark sat down with Peter and said, tell me your story. And under the inspiration and influence of the Holy Spirit, he wrote down Peter's story. Because there, you can almost hear Peter's stomach growling when he says, and they didn't even have time to eat. And you can almost feel the warmth of the tears streaming down his cheeks when he denies Jesus three times before the rooster crows two times. It's just the facts, but it's filled with pathos and feeling. Mark almost feels like he's in a hurry as he tells the story. He uses the expression, if you're translating it, by the way, it's the easiest of the four Gospels to translate from the Greek. He uses the expression immediately or straightway or right away over and over again as if to say, let's move, let's move, as though there's some urgency, some immediacy to the story. It's almost as if Mark is saying, hurry up and see Jesus as he really is because you can't afford to miss him because who he is is so urgently important that we need to hurry up and find him and see him. It's true. Matthew, Matthew talks about Jesus. Remember at the beginning about Matthew. Matthew tells us he's the son of David and, and that he's the, the Christ and the son of God. And right there at the beginning, I just wanted to point it out to you in Mark. Mark just, he, he lays all of his cards on the table, so to speak, in a Baptist crowd. He lays all of his cards on the table and, and he says, I want to tell you the good news about the Son of God, Jesus, who is the Christ. He's the Messiah. So by the time we get to chapter 8, and he asked them, who do you say that I am? The narrator of the story has already told us who he is. We already know. There are lots of people who don't know. Herod starts getting nervous when he starts hearing about Jesus after he's killed John the Baptist because in his darkened imagination, he somehow thinks that John the Baptist will come back from the dead and come back to get him. And Jesus must be the representation of John the Baptist. But we know who he is. But the most interesting insight that Mark gives us into the identity of Jesus is Jesus' self-identification. Because in this gospel, again and again, Jesus will say, I am the Son of Man. And I wonder what he means by that. 
What exactly does Jesus mean when he says, I am, I am the Son of Man? Well, with Mark, let's hurry up and come and discover exactly who Jesus is after the prologue in, in chapter 1, uh, first oh, 14 verses or so there, and the introduction again of, of John the Baptist, and then the, the, the really brief story of the temptation, which we'll explore in detail next Saturday night and Sunday morning in worship. And after the calling of the first disciples and simply saying, come and follow me, the first thing we begin to notice is that Jesus begins to perform miracles and there aren't as many miracles, and they're not called Samaya or signs the way that John does, but he, he points out miracles. There's not as much teaching in Mark as there is in Matthew. Remember we had five sections of teaching and the narrative that followed. There's only seven parables in this, in this gospel. I was learning this week as I was reading that Luke actually has more parables than anybody else, but there's no prodigal son. There's no prodigal son in the gospel of Mark. But the parables that he tells us and the words that, that we see Jesus using speak to the depths of our souls. When, 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 Jesus, when Jesus identifies himself in, in chapter 2 and calls himself the Son of Man. It's interesting because as he performs his first miracles, as he casts out the first demon, he always says, be quiet. And the, the, the deal is the demons know who Jesus is. They call him the Son of God. They call him the Mighty One. They call him the Holy One. And Jesus says, shh. So scholars have looked at the Gospel of Mark and talked about the Messianic secret. Another one put it uh, perhaps a little more beautifully, privileged information. What the demons think about Jesus is not paramount, but what people think about Jesus is really important. And Jesus will use this expression, the Son of Man. Jesus who prays very Early in the morning, we learn in chapter 1, he goes out while it's still dark when he goes to a solitary place and he prays and they find him and they say, everyone is looking for you. And Jesus says, let's go somewhere else to another village and he heads and he, he heals a paralytic who gets healed. You remember the story because his four friends care enough to lower him down into the presence of Jesus. Their persistence is the, the part of, of a miracle. And Jesus will heal and he will call Levi and they will say, why does Jesus spend so much time with, with these tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus says, because it's the healthy. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but it's the sick. And I've come to call the, not the righteous, but sinners. And Jesus shows us something about himself. He teaches us who he is in this gospel. And in this simple discourse, he says, I am the Son of of man. It's there in chapter 2 when, when they're concerned about, about Jesus' healing and they say, who, who are you telling this man who's lowered through the roof? You are forgiven. Only God can forgive, they, they say. Jesus knows what we must know, that the only person who can forgive is the one against whom the sin has been committed. So when Jesus heals on a Sabbath and then forgives. What Jesus is saying is only God can forgive and I forgive this man. But just so you'll know I have the authority, remember that word from Matthew last week, watch me heal this man as well. It was Albert Einstein who, who once said, I believe in Spinoza's God who reveals himself in the orderly harmony of what exists, not in a God, Einstein said, who concerns himself with the fates 
and actions of human beings. But Jesus says the Son of Man has authority, verses 10 and 11 of chapter 2, both to heal and to forgive. It's good for us that He has that authority, that He has that power. And I know there are times when we pray and we do not receive the answer that we want. I know those. And then there are times when we pray and God works miraculously. We received, Larry Bertrand and I received an email late in the week. We had been praying since last week for a young woman who comes with her husband and, and daughters on Saturday night. And she had been given a dire diagnosis and she had gone for a biopsy and then a surgery. And we were all desperately waiting, prayed with them in their home before they went to the hospital. Larry prayed with them at the hospital. We, we watched over them and we finally got the news. And in and, and, and exclamation point, she said, good news. The doctors discovered that there is no cancer. The tumor was precancerous, but they removed it before, and she received a, a good report. A friend of mine who's been battling with melanoma in a series of surgeries, and some of you have walked down that road, one surgery and then another and then another, and finally he, he emailed me recently and said, the doctor says all the cancer is gone. And we give thanks in those times that the Son of Man can both heal and forgive because we need to be healed, because we need to be forgiven. As the Son of Man, we go on to learn in verses 27 and 28 of chapter 2 that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. You know the story. Jesus and His disciples are walking along on a Sabbath through a field and, they are, and they're snacking on the grain that they're plucking from the field. And this is disturbing because the Pharisees are always watching, aren't they? They're always watching to see. They want to catch Jesus doing something wrong. And this is the beginning of their antagonism to Him. And they said, we notice that you're working on the Sabbath, harvesting those little pieces of grain. Like if you picked up some peanuts on a Sunday, you would be violating the, the laws of the Sabbath. They said, we, aha, we caught you. You know people like that, don't you? who always live to catch somebody else doing something wrong. You know people like that. I, I know people like that. Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And what Jesus shows us in that moment is that as the Son of Man, whatever Son of Man means, it also means He's sovereign over the Sabbath. It's as if He takes authority, as if to say, I was there when the law was inspired and I'm taking... Um, this teaching and applying it in the way that it should be. And later Jesus will look at these same people and with Isaiah's terms, He will say, they may see. Remember Isaiah 6, 9, and 10? Right after Isaiah says, here am I, send me, in verses 9 and 10. You, you go preach to these people, but seeing they will never perceive. Hearing they will never understand. Why? Because they're covering their ears. They don't want to understand who the Son of Man is. Lee Eklov shares a, a true story about a conversation between a little boy named Max, a first grader, and Max's dad, Todd. And Todd looks at his Sunday and, one day and says, Max, why didn't you answer me when I called you? And Max says, I, I didn't hear you, Dad. <laughs> what do you mean you didn't hear me? Max doesn't respond. Okay, Max, how many times did you not hear me? Three or four, Max says. Three or four times I didn't hear you. Well, these are the Pharisees. They didn't hear Him because they didn't want to hear Him. And I wonder if we hear God, will we obey? He is the Lord of the Sabbath. Is He your Lord? 
As the story unfolds and we continue to see Jesus' works of miracles, calming a storm and teaching parables at the beginning of chapter 4 and then healing a demon-possessed man in chapter 5 and a, a dead girl and a sick woman and then trying in his hometown Nazareth but being turned away and saying a prophet is now not without honor except in his hometown. And Jesus sends out the twelve as we saw last week in, in the Gospel of Luke and John the Baptist is beheaded and Jesus mourns that and tries to get away, but he can't get away from the crowds. And he loves them so much that he feeds the 5,000 and he walks on the water and he defines cleanliness and uncleanliness. And there's a Syrophoenician woman who believes that the crumbs should be given to the dogs as well and dares to ask Jesus for a miracle. And he heals a deaf man and a mute man. And then he feeds the 4,000. And then in chapter 8, as as Tim Keller has written a book about this called The King's Cross, he, he says the first eight chapters identify the king. We come to know who our king is, but in chapter 8 there's a turning point and he begins to head toward the cross. So we know about the Son of Man, that He has authority to heal and forgive sin. And we know about the Son of Man, that He's Lord of the Sabbath. But it's in chapter 8 that we begin to discover that the Son of Man has some difficult days lying in the near future. It's in chapter 8 that Jesus will say to His disciples for the first time, after He asks them, who do you say that I am? And they, and they tell Him who they believe that He is, that He begins to say in chapter 8, verses 31 and, and 32, the Son of Man must, not could or might, but must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and teachers of the law. And He must be killed. And after three days, rise again in chapter 9, verse 12. Again, Jesus will say that. It's almost redundant here. To, to be sure, he, he says, Elijah comes. But the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected. In chapter 9, verse 31, again, we hear him saying, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And in chapter 10, verses 33 and 34, he's even more specific. They'll condemn him. They'll mock him. They'll spit on him. They'll flog him. And they'll kill him. And in chapter 10, verse 45, again, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And after that, the triumphal entry unfolds after he heals blind Bartimaeus and then there's a fig tree that won't produce fruit and Jesus curses it and it, it withers and Jesus is serious about fruitfulness, isn't He? And then in chapters 12 and 13, He continues to teach about the second coming and, and it's in chapter 14 that we come to that, that strange passage about the young man who's following with Jesus the night that Jesus is arrested and they seize His garment and He runs away. And I'll tell you, what commentators believe about that, that this is almost Mark's signature. That maybe Mark was the young man who was following Jesus at a distance and, and they seize him because he's with Jesus and he, he escapes that night, albeit without his clothing. It's a strange story and it reminds us that when they arrest Jesus, this man runs away from Jesus. He may very well have been the young man who was the cousin of Barnabas, who went on the first missionary journey and ran away that time as well. The crucifixion and fear of death make Mark flee the first time. Maybe the, the rigors of a missionary journey make him 
flee the second time. But in the end, the resurrection brings him back. Every time Jesus says, I'm going to be crucified, he says, and I will rise again on the third day. Ultimately, it's the resurrection that heals us from our running away. And listen Listen to Paul's words after he's sick and tired of Mark and doesn't want to take him on another journey and he and Barnabas split up over it. But in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, he says, only Luke is with me. Timothy, get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. Maybe you've given up on somebody or maybe worse yet, somebody has given up on you or maybe worst of all, you've given up on yourself. But I come tonight to tell you that our God is the God who redeems us and restores us. And we love redemption stories. I was speaking to some of our new members today and they were telling me about a friend of mine who's fallen on very difficult times and then by the grace of God is being redeemed and restored. And we love stories like that. And maybe you can identify with Mark running away from from Jesus. Maybe you can identify with Peter because if this is Peter's story, nobody has greater pain and uh, difficulty after, after denying Jesus than, than Peter does. I'm reminded of Fred Craddock's story about a Catholic priest after Vatican II. They invited Craddock to come to a, a gathering. They were trying to convince the Catholic priest to no longer do the masses in Latin. You may remember that period of time. And uh, there was some pushback. People don't like for tradition to change. So when they came in to, to meet with these priests, one priest came in wearing no shoes, some white linen trousers and his t-shirt, no belt. And Craddock looked at him uh, quizzically and and when the time came for the people to speak about the changes in the Catholic Church, this man stood up and he, he said, all these years I faced the altar and now you tell me I have to face the people. All these years I spoke Latin and now you tell me I have to speak English. You've taken away everything I have. Look at me, he says in his white trousers and his t-shirt. All that is left is me and God. And I suppose at the end of the day, it comes down to that, doesn't it? Like the, the young man fleeing from Jesus' captors, at the end of the day, all that he has left in the world is him and God. And they predicted and confirmed crucifixion. They tell us some that, that you don't run from God, but you run to God, especially because of the cross. And just as, as God doesn't give up on Mark, we must not give up on people. I love the story of the crucifixion. I love it as C.S. Lewis depicts it in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when he uses these words, when a willing victim who has committed no treachery is killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. That's what happened in the cross. That's what happened in the resurrection. When one who had committed no treachery died in our place, though we were traitors, though we had denied him, though we had sinned against him, when he rose again, death started working backward. The Son of Man must be crucified, but he must also rise again. And finally, we discover in Mark chapter 13, verses 26 and 27, as he talks about this Son of Man, that the Son of Man will return in great glory. He says, starting in verse 24, but in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened 
the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. But at that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. What Jesus promises is that this Son of Man, whom he's been saying is going to be crucified and is going to rise again in his teaching and these parables about the second coming, he says, I will return personally. I will return visibly. I will return powerfully. I will return victoriously. I will return again. And in that moment we realize this Son of Man is more than we have bargained for. He is more than just a human being. It's not just Jesus saying, I, uh, as he refers to himself by saying the Son of Man. It's not just that he's human, but he is human to be the Son of Man. He's more than a human. He's more than the messenger Ezekiel, who's also called the Son of Man. He's the Messiah. And I'll tell you how we know that. In the fourth gospel, in John chapter 12, verse 34, after Jesus says, If I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. The crowd says to Jesus, we've heard from the law that the Christ, the Messiah, will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man? See how they use Son of Man in apposition to Christ? If the Christ remains forever, how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Jesus, aren't you misusing that term? Because we understand the Son of Man in the light of the book of Daniel, chapters 9 and 11, where the Son of Man is this powerful, resplendent, radiant ruler who is the Messiah. So how can you say the Messiah is going to be lifted up? How can you say he's going to die? And Jesus makes this promise and says, the Son of Man may be crucified. He will rise again. He will come again. I'll tell you what I know. If a man can come bursting forth from the tomb, then believe him when he says he can do anything else he wants to do. Until somebody else has, does it, has done it, we will have to take Jesus at his word. He says, I will return MacArthur said that when he left the Philippines in 1942, I shall return. And on October the 20th, 1944, he did. Acts chapter 1 tells us that 2,000 years ago, when Jesus ascended into the heavens, they're just sort of standing there staring. And the angels say, why do you stand staring up into the sky? This same Jesus who has ascended into the heavens, this same Jesus will return. He will come back again and if and if MacArthur can keep his promise how much more will Jesus keep his and in Mark chapter 8 Jesus says if you're ashamed of the son of man he will be ashamed of you when he comes in glory can I ask you what Jesus asked who do you say that Jesus is. If you read the gospel closely, there are lots of different responses to Jesus. Some of them are antagonistic. I, I think of this whenever I, I hear the name Bill Maher. I think of um, the antagonism, this, uh, this commentator who is so against all things spiritual. A Christian was on talk radio this weekend uh, and uh, he said to two sports talk show hosts who were critical of Christianity, let me respectfully ask you to stop making fun of religion. And then he said this, you either get it or you don't. And one of the radio talk show hosts on this sports station said, okay, I don't. I don't get it. 
in Jesus' day. Some were antagonistic to him. Some rejected him. Some were confused about him. Read the Gospel of Mark and see how confused the disciples were. They really, really don't understand. He feeds 5,000. He feeds 4,000. And then he says, beware of the yeast of the, the, the Pharisees. And they say, is it because we forgot to bring food with us? And Jesus says, how many did I feed? How many baskets did you pick up? How many did I feed the second time? How many baskets? Do you really think I'm worried about where we're going to get food? No, I'm more concerned, he says, about the sinfulness of these religious leaders. Some rejected him. Some were confused about him. But some in Mark's gospel believed him. And they're not the ones you might expect. That paralyzed man who's lowered by his four friends. Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue. The Syrophoenician woman who keeps hanging on and says, let, let some of the crumbs fall to the dogs. Blind Bartimaeus who takes Jesus at his word. And the Roman centurion who stands by the cross and says, surely this man is the Son of God. What will we do with the Son of Man who is the Son of God? Jesus, who is the Christ, worship Him, proclaim Him, and serve Him until He comes, as He said, in the clouds. Will you pray with me? Father, thank You for this promise that the Son of Man, who died to save us from our sins, who rose again on the third day, who is coming again, this Son of man is the Son of God, is the Messiah. And Lord, I pray tonight that every person in this room could call Him Savior. And Lord, we know You are Lord of the universe, Lord of the Sabbath. How much more, Lord of Houston and Lord of Tallowood. But tonight, Lord, we ask You to be our Lord. We ask that You would reign without rival in the decisions we make in the next few moments, in the decisions we make this week and this month and this year for the rest of our lives, Lord. We know enough about You to say this. You are Lord. You are Lord. You have risen from the dead and You are Lord. Let every knee bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Christ, is Lord of all. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.